This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 104, we're letter number 6. The 32 letters, these are a collection of letters written by the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And um, many of these letters were appeal letters. I'm sure you all got bombarded, we all got bombarded with appeal letters before the end of the year. <laughs> One day left, 24 hours left, 36 hours left. Alter Rebbe also wrote an appeal letter collecting money for the tiny Jewish community, especially those who made Aliyah from Eastern Europe, from Russia, who made Aliyah, moved to Israel. This is, this is in the 18th century. But Alter Rebbe's appeal letter is a little different than the appeal letters you got in your email. Alter Rebbe's appeal letters are very learned and explaining the advantage of giving tzedakah and especially giving tzedakah to the Holy Land. So this letter is based on a verse in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18. The verse reads, it says, Russia is a kulas shaka. A wicked person does a a false deed. In other words, his actions, his actions um, lie to him because he relies on the fact that his his evil actions will bring him success. At the end of the day, it just leads to self destruction. So they lie to him. He does actions. But they, they, they lie. He has great expectations that his uh, deceiving and his lies and his will bear fruit. And at the end of the day, he, um, they end up disappointing him. So it turns out to be a false, a false hope. Versus Vizireya, Tzedakah, and he who sows, who plants Tzedakah, righteousness and kindness and tzedakah, tzedakah, charity. Secher emes. Secher. That's how it's pronounced. Secher. So Rashi says, some say that even though it says secher, it means schar, <laughs> reward. His reward will be emes. In other words, his reward will be truthful. He will get a reward. If you do good deeds, it's guaranteed that you will be rewarded. If you give tzedakah, you will be rewarded, and your reward will be in this world. If you do spiritual things, the reward is not always guaranteed to be materialized. It could be in the next world, in the world to come. 
spiritual reward. But tzedakah, you guarantee that your reward will be tangible and physical. Rashi says that this does not mean reward because the word, the Hebrew word for reward is sechar. The pronunciation is sechar. Here, the pronunciation is secher. So Rashi says secher means like a someone who blocks, who closes up water, creates like a dam. When you create a dam, you're guaranteed that the fish have nowhere to flow. So the fish are trapped. So you're guaranteed to be able to find the fish. When you create a dam, a blockage, the fish have nowhere to go. So you know that the pool will collect the fish and you're guaranteed to have your food, your, your dinner, you're going to have your fish. So he says, Secher Emes, you're guaranteed that you will find your, your reward. So it's, it's a worth, it's a cause that's emes, that will, you're guaranteed that you will get your reward, just like secher, just like when you block the water, you, you're guaranteed you will catch the fish, so too you're guaranteed that you will receive a reward. But either way, whether you interpret the secher as schar, the reward is emes, or the way Rashi interprets secher means make a like a dam to block a blockage to block the water to trap the fish so you're trapping but the idea is the same what the verse is telling us is that unlike the wicked person who relies and depends on his success and ends up being an illusion the righteous person who does good deeds who does tzedakah his reward is guaranteed the Alter Rebbe in this letter interprets the verse. He says that Secher, he interprets it as Secher's reward. And he interprets it that he who sows and plants Siddhaqah, literally giving charity, what is his reward? His reward will be Emes. That is his reward. Not that his reward is Emes, that his reward is guaranteed. His reward is Emes. That will be his reward. And that's what he's going to explain. What does it mean that your reward is emes? What kind of reward is that? What does it mean? That and only someone who gives tzedakah receives this reward. The reward of emes, of truth. He who sows tzedakah has a reward of truth. Proverbs 11. This means that the attribute of truth the God-given reward for sowing tzedakah. The term this means is generally used to forestall an alternative interpretation. Here too, by this term, the Alter Rebbe stresses that we are to understand the Hebrew word secher to mean reward, rather than it's being understood to mean closing off and restraining, water or whatever, in order to concentrate. The latter interpretation is that of Rashi. A parallel term is the word in the verse and the wellsprings of the deep were sealed. Uh, furthermore, even the Targum and other commentaries who do, who do read Sefer to mean payment of a reward can be understood to mean that the individual who sows charity receives a true reward, i.e. an everlasting reward rather than a reward that consists of truth. 
Now the Rebbe therefore specifies, this means that the reward granted from above for sowing tzedakah is the attribute of truth. Because obviously the attribute of truth is not something that we can acquire. It's a reward that Hashem has to give us. It's obviously truth. The attribute of truth is something that's not something that's human. It's something that Hashem promises us as a reward to the one who gives tzedakah. To the one who's charitable and generous and benevolent and kind, Hashem promises a reward which only Hashem can give, which is the attribute of truth. That's what he's going to explain. It's also written, you give truth unto Jacob, which would appear to indicate, once again, that the attribute of truth is granted from above. According to the commentaries of Rashi and Targum, however, this verse does not describe a state of affairs. Rather, it petitions that Hashem give truth unto Jacob, that he fulfilled to Jacob's children the truthful promises that he had made to Jacob. It's a request. Please, Hashem, give truth to Yaakov. In other words, in the Torah we find, you find in Rashi, the simple interpretation, the basic interpretation, the truest interpretation. When Moshe complained to Hashem, and he cried out, why is a just God allowing these terrible things to happen to the Jewish people in Egypt? Since I came to liberate them, things only got worse. So what does Hashem respond? Hashem says, I revealed myself to the patriarchs, but my name I did not make myself known. I did not let them know my name. Rashi says, what does that mean? says, my name means I did not let them know my truth. Meaning, simply, that I promised, but I didn't fulfill. Truth, in the simple interpretation of the Pasuk, of the verse, is when you actually fulfill what you promise. You carry out what exactly as you promise. In the most literal sense. Literally, carrying out what you promise. Because there are many things that can be carried out in a spiritual sense. I, the promised land. The promised land could be a dream. The promised land could be in the spiritual sense you arrive in the promised land. But the literal promise was, I'm going to give you the promised land. And I never fulfilled that promise. Hashem is telling Moshe. I did not fulfill. I made them all these promises. I swore to Abraham. I swore to Jacob. I swore to, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov. But I never fulfilled that promise. But now, with the Exodus, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to reveal myself with my true name. Shmi Hashem, my name, my personal name. That means I'm going to fulfill. So that's the nature of truth. nature of truth is, it's literal. It's very simple. It's literal. You say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you do exactly as you promise. No ifs, buts, maybe stories. Could have been, almost been, it should have been, it's spiritually been. It means literally. So, so this is a request that the Jewish people are asking Hashem, please, bring, give truth to your promises that you made to Yaakov. Make it happen literally. It's not enough that you, we have all these promises, wonderful promises, but we want to see the tangible result of all these promises. We want to see the fulfillment of all these promises. That's the literal meaning. The Rebbe again says that a deeper interpretation is 
that we're requesting give Yaakov the attribute of truth. Because only Hashem could give, has the attribute of truth, and only Hashem could give the attribute of truth. And he's going to bring a proof that this is a correct interpretation. Continue. Hence, this verse does not prove that the attribute of truth is a gift granted from above. Dr. Rebbe therefore goes on to specify that this verse is to be understood in the same light as the verse quoted at the outset of this epistle as follows. And here, the prophet Mika speaks the praises of the Holy One, blessed be he, as is written in the Holy Zohar, i.e., rather than petitioning Hashem, this verse extols him for fulfilling his promise of granting the attribute of truth to Jacob. This means that it is the Holy One, blessed be he, who gives the attribute of truth to Jacob. All the commentaries learn that this is a request. We're requesting, Hashem, please give truth to your promises that you made to Yaakov. In other words, literally fulfill all your promises. But the Zohar, the Holy Zohar, interprets it as a praise that the prophet, the Micha, is praising Hashem. Praising him for fulfilling his promises, for giving truth to Yaakov. So again, according to the Zohar, this is a praise to Hashem, that Hashem is one who gives his attribute of truth, because it's only within the power of Hashem to give this attribute of truth. And he gave this attribute of truth to Yaakov. So we have to understand. And this needs to be understood. Does Jacob have no truth, heaven defend until the Holy One, blessed be he, gives it to him <coughs> from above? As a matter of fact, what is the attribute of Yaakov, of Jacob? Truth. <laughs> that is the attribute of Yaakov. Avram is kindness. Yitzchak is strength, Gevura. What does Yaakov represent? He represents truth. So if he has truth already, and he is truth, why does he need to be given truth when that's his middle name? That's his name. That's his whole being. His whole essence is truth. What, what does it mean to, to have truth? I don't understand what the, the concept well, Yaakov was a perfect blend, a perfect combination between Avraham and Yitzchak. He took the best attributes of Avraham and the best attributes of Yitzchak. He included all of them together because Avraham was to the right, Yitzchak was to the left. Avraham was kindness, Yitzchak was strength. And Yaakov was like a perfect, perfect combination. And the reason why he could almost reconcile opposites and combine within himself these seeming opposites is because that's the attribute of truth. Truth is all-encompassing. Truth is... It's, be it's begin yeah, beginning, middle, and end. The letters itself are Aleph, Mem, Saf. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So... He contains everything. He contains, even reconciled or appears to be opposites, and yet he contains within him because he's truth. So he has a flexibility to be able to incorporate everything. For example, Avraham represents the love, kindness. Now, Avraham had one child that took it the wrong way, Ishmael. Ishmael's kindness was not a healthy kindness based rooted in holiness. It was a 
Now, Avram was, was there to serve the public. Avram opened his home to everyone. Avram saw the good in everyone. Avram was like a liberal, a kind, generous, <laughs> good person, who only saw the good in everyone. And, um, you know, he believed very much in serving the public. But when taken to an extreme, you get a Yishmo, you get a communist. <laughs> you get someone who steals from the individual to help, to help everyone. So when you, take, when you take that kindness, but taking it to an extreme, it becomes corrupt. It's kindness, it's corrupt. It's kindness, it's about ego. There's a difference if kindness is based on truth, because God is kind to us, and therefore I am kind. So it's based on humility, on humbleness. That was Avram's kindness. Versus a kindness is based on ego. You know, I'm, an, I'm a great person, and therefore I have to be liberal and kind. And a kindness that's based on ego is totally corrupt, because it's really not about the other person. You're not there to help the other person. Woe unto the person who refuses your kindness. <laughs> the ego maniac, it's all about himself. He couldn't care less about you. You're nobody to him. You're just a prop to prove how liberal he is and how open-minded he is. And therefore the result could be disastrous the person, to the person you're trying to help. You're not helping him. You're harming him. But it doesn't matter. I feel kind. I, I, I'm such an open-minded, kind person. You know, I'm coming across as a kind person. If my policy is completely backfire and disastrous and harmful to the person I'm trying to help, it's not about him. It never was about him. It's about me. So that's corruption. That's Yishmael, the offshoot of Avram, which is kindness and compassion. What can be wrong with kindness and compassion? Everything can be wrong with kindness and compassion. Because if it's, if it's rooted in ego and rooted in the wrong things. So that's the corruption of Avram, of kindness. Liberalism run amok without any rhyme or reason, without any sense of truth and honesty and godliness and humility. It's all about ego. Then you have the, uh, the opposite. Yitzchak. Yitzchak was about the individual. Heroism, courage, strength, intensity, climbing Mount Everest, pushing yourself beyond the limits, excelling deep, Genuine, digging deep. And that's wonderful. Because life ultimately boils down to the individual. You know, there are people who are running the whole, trying to run everyone else's life. They can't figure out their own lives, but they're, they're fixing the whole world. <laughs> you can't even fix your own life. The only one we are in charge of control of is ourselves, barely. So fix yourself and then fix the whole world. Take care of yourself. Every human being is a world, is a universe. Every one of us, that's why God created Adam, one person. Teaches us that every one of us is an entire universe, a whole universe. So individuality, and it's all based on individuality. And respect the individual, and respect private property, and respect a person's success, and, 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 and genuine effort. And that's wonderful. But then you have individualism run amok. When it's all based on ego, it just becomes to an extreme where 
all that exists is me and I don't care about anyone else. I have no responsibilities to anyone else and who cares and, you know, sink or swim and I have no responsibilities and it's all about my success. No matter how many people I'm hurting in the process, I couldn't care less. I have no, no sense of uh, communal responsibility or helping another person. It's all about myself. If I can earn an extra penny on the stock market, my, my stock can go up an extra penny, so I'll shave 10,000 jobs. What do I care? It's none of my business. I have no responsibility, no allegiance, no loyalty, no uh, nothing. So it's all me, myself, and I. So when individualism run amok, it's corrupt. It's capitalism run amok. Capitalism is wonderful. We have, we have nothing against capitalism. Everyone has a right to earn a living, honestly. Business, life is business, and it's fine. You have a service. You're producing something productive. You have a right to earn a living, and it's wonderful and great. And it should be rewarded. But individualism run amok, capitalism run amok, without a soul, without any sense of ruthless, arrogant and ruthless. And it becomes lying also. All you care is about yourself and therefore you're selling your customers a bill of goods. You know that it's harmful, you know that it's dangerous, you know. And yet you couldn't care less. All that matters is to get ahead and I don't care how many bodies I have to bury and how many people I have to step over and how many lies I have to say. So that, that's Esau. Esau is an offshoot of Yitzchak. That's individualism run amok. Individualism without a soul. But these are like two opposites. A sense of community, a sense of love versus Yitzchak, which is a sense of individuality, a sense of pushing yourself to the limit, demanding of yourself, excelling, heroic effort. But then you also have the negative offshoots of Avraham. Then you have Yaakov. Yaakov was perfect. All of his children were Jewish. They were the 12 tribes. His family was intact. He had no Esau and he had no, no Yishmael. He's the first Jewish family, intact, whole. What was Yaakov's secret? Because Yaakov created the first Jewish family. A family is a very interesting dynamic. On one hand, a family is like a community. It's a whole. We're part of a whole. The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. On the other hand, a healthy family is not one that suppresses the individuality. Every individual in the family is unique, is special, is able to shine and to flourish as an individual and with all their quirks and all their uniqueness and all their and add and attribute to the whole family, enhance the whole family. So it's like a perfect combination where you celebrate the individual and you celebrate the whole and enhances each other. It's almost like a paradox. But that's truth. That's the nature of truth. Nature of truth, because it's not about it's not ego based. It's not about me. It's about if it's based on truth then not only is individuality versus the community, it's not a conflict, liberalism versus conservatism, right versus left. That whole split, that whole conflict is only external. But once you get to the core, you get to the inside, you get to the essence, you get to the soul, it's the same soul. 
The right comes from the soul, the left comes from the soul. It's the same person. It's my right hand and my left hand. It's the same body. It's the same organism. So in the body, every organ is, is unique, and yet they're all part of one. It's a family. It's unified. Because it's MS. It's based on truth. Because they're all part of something larger than themselves. The right hand feels, I'm not just the right hand. I'm part of a living organism that's greater than me and greater than all, all the organs put together. The left hand feels, yeah, besides being a left hand, I'm part of something larger. We're all part of something larger than all of us put together. And therefore, we're all one, and each one of us is unique, and we celebrate that uniqueness and celebrate that individuality. Just like the 12 tribes, every tribe was unique. Every tribe had its own stone, its own color, its own flag, its own, its own uniqueness, and con- its own unique contribution to the Jewish whole. The 12 gates in the temple corresponding to the 12 tribes. Every, all roads lead to Jerusalem, but every tribe had its own gate, its own entrance, its own path to the same place. So Jews are one, and yet each one has its own flavor, its own uniqueness, and it enhances each other. The community enhances the individual, the individual enhances the community. And we find this unique blend, unique combination, exclusively, uniquely amongst the Jewish people. Take, for example, prayer. There's nothing more private than prayer. Especially the silent prayer. It's between you and Hashem. Baruch Atta, you're speaking to God directly. Shul is a very private event. That's why men and women don't sit together. Because men and women sitting together is a social event. You don't even sit with your own spouse. Because I have a relationship, personal relationship to God that transcends all my relationships. Including my relationship with my spouse, including my... It's, it's a person, one-to-one, Baruch Atta, speaking to God, person-to-person, directly. And yet you don't pray at home, in a locked room, in isolation. You pray with the community. The men, the women, the children are all under the same roof, praying together. One side of the Mechitza, we're all together. So we gain strength from each other, and yet the community does not suppress the individual. Where else do you have? Where else in the world do you have such a unique blend combination. You know, when people work in corporations, it, it crushes the individual. Where do you have? You have the community, and at the same time, you have the individual. And each one enhances the other. This is the nature of Israel. This is the nature of the Jewish people, of Israel, of Jacob. That's the quality of emes, of truth. When you have truth, then it's not either or. That whole split, dichotomy between either or, right or left, liberal or conservative, communal versus individual, that's all superficial and external. But once you get to emes, a level of emes, it's not either or. It's all rooted in one one reality. And they they work together in harmony and enhance each other. And therefore you have the family, the first Jewish family, where you have the individual that flourishes, and you have the sense of family, the sense of community. So this is the nature of Yaakov. So Yaakov gets to, on the inside. Emes is on the inside. Emes is that core, that essence. And he's about to say Yaakov's attribute was compassion. What is compassion? Compassion, it reconciles opposites. Because here you have the prosecutor and you have the defense, the lawyer. The prosecutor says he's guilty. The cup is half empty. The lawyer says, not guilty. The cup is half full. They're looking at the same reality, 
It's not that one is right and one is wrong. They're both right. The cup is half full and the cup is half empty. It depends right where you're going to look at. So the prosecutor's job is to highlight and to emphasize all the negativity about the, the person. The, the uh, lawyer's job is to highlight and emphasize all the positive qualities of the person. Not one is right and one is wrong. There's two ways to look at it. And it's ir- irreconcilable. But then comes along compassion. To compassion, there's no argument. Rahmanus. What does compassion say? You're 100% right. Turns to the prosecutor, you're 100% right. The person is guilty. But have Rahmanus. <laughs> have mercy. You're right. In a court of law, you're right. But judge, have mercy. He's human. There's no argument. He's not arguing with him. Compassion and, and the prosecutor, the defense prosecutor, are arguing with her. They're clashing. It's one or the other. Either you win or you win. You can't have both. It's fire and water. Compassion reconciles it. I'm not arguing. I, you're right and you're right. And everyone agrees. Have Rahmanas. No argument. That's the nature of compassion. Because the compassionate person is able to look a little deeper. Children can't be compassionate. Children are black and white. There's no, there's no flexibility. It's, everything is black and white. An adult could be compassionate. Because when you're compassionate, you go deeper. You don't look at the surface of the person. Yeah, the person is horrible and acted horrible and disgusting and unforgivable. Compassion goes a little deeper. And what do you see underneath all those layers? You see a troubled little child, a soul, that's crying out for help. It's a cry for help. It's a, it's a person who never grew up. It's a person who never matured. It's a person who, who knows what they went through as a child, what, where, what kind of upbringing they had growing up, who knows how damaged they were when they grew up. It's a Rahmanas. When you have Rahmanas, you can't hate. You can't be angry. So instead of becoming defensive and argumentative and clashing with the person, you just deflate the whole argument. Because you're man enough, you're big enough, you're mature enough to go beyond the whole conflict. I'm not getting caught into your narishkeit, into your foolishness, into your superficial foolishness. I just have Rahmanus in me. It's a pity. And I can't hate anyone you have pity on. So this is a very mature and a very deep attitude. Only someone who's in touch with his own soul can see the soul in the other person and feel the soul in the other person and have Rahmanas. Even if they're not deserving, but have Rahmanas. It takes a great person to be able to do that. That's a sign of emes. This means a person who's beyond ego. Because ego is very rigid. A person could even be compassionate, but it's, 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 this is my nature. Nature is very, this is who I am, it's my nature, but it's very rigid. There's no flexibility, there's no movement, there's no change. MS is when you're able to get beyond ego, you're able to see soul. When you touch the soul, change is possible, movement is possible. And you can feel differently about someone you're set in your ways. It's amazing, people work together, they're forced to work together for 20 years, and they hate each other from day one. And 20 years later, nothing budged, nothing changed. They, they, 
label each other and they pigeonhole each other and this is this is what type of person you are and what type of person you are and every time every time you walk into a room it gives me the chills and and I can't stand you and I grow tense and vice versa and it's mutual and it's stuck. But if you're able to get beyond the ego, you're able to get beyond the nature, you're able to get to the soul, movement is possible, change is possible, because everyone has a soul. And if you're able to touch the soul, you'll be surprised what you discover. Life is full of surprises. Underneath all of that, Narishkaitan is a good soul, a good person, maybe a troubled child that never grew up, but still a pure, innocent child. And, and, and then you never know. You may feel completely differently about the person. Once you discover a depth in the person, beyond the surface but you have to have a depth to see the depth in the other person you have to have a soul to see the soul in the other person so it's emes this is the quality of emes it's going beyond ego beyond surface beyond nature really discovering the essence of the person the core that was Yaakov's attribute Yaakov's attribute was about emes and that's why all of his children the first Jewish family all of his children were righteous he had no Esau he had no Yishmael not that they were perfect. They did plenty of things that were not perfect. Yaakov was angry. But it doesn't matter. You don't have to be perfect. If your core is good, so you're not perfect. As long as your core is good. That's the greatest gift we can give our children. Their self-image. Essentially, I'm a good person. Okay. Sometimes I fall off the wagon. Sometimes I do things that I'm ashamed of. But I don't look at myself as a bum and a low life and as I don't care. I do care. And I'm essentially a good person. And if I did something wrong, I'll fix it. That self-image is very important. Because if your essence is good, my essence is good. I know my essence is good. I have an ashrama. I want to do good. My essence is good. Okay, listen, I'm a human and sometimes I'm influenced in the wrong way and I wasn't strong enough and I had moments of weakness and I'm not proud of everyone has their skeletons in the closet it's fine it's fine it's okay but, but you don't throw in the towel if your self image is I'm a bum and I'm a lowlife then you throw in the towel what's the point why am I wasting my time I might as well just, uh, just surrender and just enjoy life and uh, that's it you don't give up the struggle you don't you refuse just to throw in the towel and that's what Yaakov gave his children. Your essence is good. It's your essence. It's not an act. It's not otherworldly. To Abraham, the Judaism was otherworldly. This otherworldly, godly kindness that was like the sun shining. It was so superhuman. Isaac was surely superhuman, heroic, uh, you know, ready to give up his life. I mean, so you say to yourself, hey, this is not me. If I can't live up to these otherworldly expectations, then... I'm an Ace or I'm a Yishmol. I mean, who, who am I kidding? I'm not even going to bother. Yaakov, however, revealed his emes, goes deeper and discovers, no, this is your nature. Your nature is good. Your nature is your soul. That's who you really are. That's your true identity. That's who you really are. And therefore, it's the most natural thing in the world to do good, to act good, to think good, because this is who you are. You're being true to yourself. And that's the image he gave to his children, his family. You're Jews. You're good. You have a holy soul. Well, if you did something wrong, fine, we'll take care of it. But you're essentially good. And that's so important. That self-image is so important. I'm not Bob the alcoholic. 
it's a terrible way of looking at yourself. You open the AA meetings. I'm Bob the alcoholic. It's a horrible way of looking at yourself. No, I'm not Bob the alcoholic. I'm a soul. And I'm, I'm good. I have a problem, I have to take care of it. But I refuse to surrender and I refuse to throw in the towel and I'm not giving up the good fight. Okay, I, I failed. Fine, I'll fix myself. I'll pick myself up. And I'll... So this is Emmas. Emmas is going deeper. Discovering, revealing your true nature. Uncovering your true nature. But it takes a very deep, very profound... That's why Yaakov was the deepest in a certain sense of all the patriarchs. The truest of all the patriarchs. The most perfect of all the patriarchs. Well, after all, he did have a Jewish father and a Jewish grandfather, so he did, have a, he did have a head start. He had that. So he was the culmination of Avram and Yitzchak. He perfected them, and therefore he had the best of both of their attributes. That individuality, that sense of collective, kindness, strength, in perfect measure, perfect balance, perfect harmony. And he created the first whole, intact Jewish family. So this is the nature of Yaakov. So it only begs the question, why then does Yaakov need the reward of truth? When he is truth, he embodies truth, his whole being is truth. Why does he need the reward which only Hashem can give? The reward of truth. As the two verses, as the verse in Micha and the verse in Mishli that says, how do we get the reward of truth? Specifically through tzedakah, charity, through giving tzedakah. So first we have to understand what is the nature of truth that's only in the hands of the divine, of Hashem. And Hashem gives it to us as a reward. So much so that even Yaakov, who embodied truth, he needed truth. Hashem had to add to him and give him truth. You can see this is not the typical uh, collection letter (laughs) you get in the mail. (laughs) This is... uh, but by the time you finish reading these letters, you want to write a very big check to Tzedakah. That's the difference. <laughs> okay. However, it is well known that the attribute of Jacob is the attribute of compassion. Abram epitomizes Hesed, the attribute of kindness. Isaac epitomizes Gevura, the attribute of severity. The predominant attribute of Jacob is Tiferet or rachamim, compassion. The inward aspect of the soul's divine service when motivated by hesed is the love of God. The inward aspect of the soul's divine service when motivated by givura is the awe of God. So too, divine service when motivated by compassion has its divine inward aspect. So he's saying what that means on a personal level, the Avram represents the love of Hashem. Yitzchak represents the awe of Hashem, being an awe of Hashem, and feeling humbled in the presence of Hashem. So love is expansive. You feel close, you feel intimate, you feel warm. Gevura is the exact opposite effect. Gevura, you feel remote, you feel distant, you feel insignificant, you feel... It puts you in perspective. It puts you, you know, and it takes you true measure and you feel humbled in the presence of Hashem. So too, compassion also has its equivalent in its service of Hashem on a personal level. Just like love and kindness also has 
the equivalent of what it means on a personal level in our service of Hashem, it means love of Hashem. Strength also has the inner quality of being awe of Hashem. So to compassion also has a corresponding quality, what it means on a very personal, internal level in our relationship with Hashem. And the service of God through compassion derives from the arousal in a man's heart of profound compassion for the divine spark in his soul, which is distant from the light of God's countenance whenever the man goes about in the darkness of the vanities of the world. When a man finds himself straying forlorn in a state of spiritual darkness, he can thus awaken himself within a feeling of compassion for the soul spark within him, and that he himself has banished from the light of its divine source. So just like a person has literally compassion on a, another human being, you see a person in a sorry state, you just have compassion. Your heart, your heart just feels for that person. You empathize. So why shouldn't we have compassion for ourselves? Our poor soul, our neshama. What are we doing to our poor neshama? What are we, why are we beating up our poor neshama? Mercilessly. Because every time we sin, every time we do something wrong, we say a lie, every time we don't think like a Jew, speak like a Jew, act like a Jew, it tortures our soul. We're torturing our soul. So, I mean, it's like taking a hand of an innocent child and putting it into fire. I mean, how cruel could we be? Without a drop of Rahmanas, the neshama is crying out in pain. And we just couldn't kill us. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy the moment. So, Misham is screaming. So, just a little compassion. Just like we have compassion on a stranger, why shouldn't we have compassion on our own Misham, our own soul? Our soul is so pure, so innocent, a piece of the divine. Have Rahmanas. You know, we wouldn't treat strangers this way. Why are we treating our own soul? To take with our own very hands and to, to sink into the grubby, materialistic world and without any thought, without, with abandon, without any sense of responsibility. Why, why, how could we do that? Our neshama, how could we do that? Our poor soul. You know, our poor soul needs, needs Torah, needs mitzvot, it needs godly things to nourish it, to nurture it, to feel at home, to feel good. It's cruel it's the ultimate cruelty without any sensitivity, without any sense of to, to treat our neshama this way. Because we can't help but affect our neshama. We can't park our soul and park it on the shelf and say, I'm taking a recess, I'm taking a break, a vacation. Everything that we do affects our soul. We are doing it. And our soul is trapped with us, so it's, it's, it's with us. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, Everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say directly impacts the soul. And the soul is so sensitive that it's excruciating to So how can we not have Rahmanas? Just like you have Rahmanas in a person. Rahmanas in a child. If you saw a child lying in the gutter being beaten up, brutally beaten, you wouldn't have Rahmanas. Even if you had a heart of stone, you wouldn't have Rahmanas. Well, are we doing anything less? To the soul, it's just as cruel. 
you know, you read what the Nazis did to the Jews. When we sin, the soul goes through the same pain. The torture was murderous, was in, so inhumane. You read it, you just, you just, just your hair stands on the head. The, the, the inhumanity, the cruelty, the evil. When you read the specific descriptions and how it's, it's indescribable. Well, the truth is, when we behave in a certain way, we're doing the same to our soul. It's just as painful, if not more painful. Every time we tell a lie, every time we slander, every time we do something wrong, to the neshama, to the soul, it's so unbearable. It's a, con- it's a concentration game. So if you saw a Nazi in action, your heart would melt. You'd be enraged. You have Rachmanus. You do whatever you can to save, to save the, the Jew. Well, how about saving our own Hashem? Because what we're doing is not anything, anything less, spiritually, just as cruel, if not more cruel, just as vicious, if not more vicious, spiritually. The soul is so fine-tuned. The soul is so sensitive. You, know, you can't pretend. You can't ignore. You know, you can't legislate it away. No matter what, the, if we go against the Torah, we go against what's divine, what's godly. The soul is suffering. The soul is in pain, unbearable, indescribable pain. It's hell on earth. It's going through the Gehenna in this world. It's a living concentration camp for the soul, and the soul never gets used to it. It's not that a person sins. After 40 years, the soul gets used to it. The soul doesn't get used to it. The soul is, is raw. The soul is innocent. The soul is pure. It's a piece of the divine essence. So when we sink into indulgence and sink into materialism and sink into selfishness and gluttony, and especially if we do something wrong, we, we sin, it, it's, yeah, you have Rachmanus. If you have a heart, your heart just goes out. So even if I want to sin, how could I? I have Rahmanus on my neshama, my poor neshama. So this is serving Hashem with the attribute of compassion. Just like you serve Hashem with the attribute of compassion, of love, you feel a love for Hashem, you feel close to Hashem, you want to connect with Hashem. Just like you serve Hashem with the attribute of awe, when you're in awe of Hashem, you're not going to violate His wish. Hashem's wish is sacred. When Hashem says, don't do anything sacred, so too you can serve Hashem with the attribute of compassion. So even if nothing else works, if you don't find any love in your heart, and you don't find that you can't sense, you can't develop a sense of awe in your heart, but you could develop a sense of compassion. Rachmanus. If you sense your soul, and you acknowledge that you have a soul, then you can develop a sense of Rachmanus. And that's powerful enough to help you restart your inner life, your spiritual life, your path back to godliness, to goodness, to wholesomeness. So if a person finds himself straying, he says, a person finds himself lost, he's lost. In a spiritual forest, he's lost. He's losing his way, he's straying. He's in a place of darkness. He doesn't respond to godliness doesn't feel an attraction to godly things. doesn't feel any sense of awe. 
from things that are not uh, from God. It doesn't feel any sense of repulsion to anything that's not God. But what could get through to him? Rahman. Even the heart of stone, you have Rahmanas. You realize you have an Ashram, but you can't do that to yourself. You simply can't do that to yourself. As much as you desire, as much as you want to have fun, I just I don't have the heart. I just can't do that too much. How can I treat my neshama with such cruelty, with such viciousness? I just can't. So this is a very powerful drive, powerful motivation that can get through and can help a person find his way out of the, the darkness. And this arousal of compassion itself derives from and is proportionate to a man's understanding and deep cognition of the greatness of God. He reflects upon how even the most infinitely sublime words are considered as truly not before him. For all their God-given bounty and vitality derives from a mere glimpse or reflection of a single letter of his blessed name. As it is written, the word to come was created merely by the letter root of the divine name. He says, in order to arouse his compassion, first a person has to have a very deep and a very profound understanding of the greatness of Hashem. Because to Hashem, see, we consider darkness, we consider negativity as darkness. A person who's spiritually lost, a person who lost his ways, not living a wholesome, godly life, not living a Jewish life. So he's lost. He's a, he's a victim of materialism. He's surrendered to materialism. And he's just sunk in the quagmire of earthiness and materialism and self-indulgence, ego, and his life becomes very superficial and shallow, meaningless and really empty and really unsatisfying because the person who lives for money, power and fame and indulgence ultimately is not a very happy camper because it doesn't lead to happiness. The more you have, the less you have, the more you have, the more you feel that you have, the less you have. It doesn't satisfy you you just get hungry and hungrier. It's like eating junk food. The more junk food you eat, the hungrier you get because there's nothing there. There's, no, there's nothing there to nourish you. It's empty. It's shelves. It's... So the more you indulge in materialism, the more coarse and crass you become, the more egotistical you become. You just become worse and worse, more and more alienated from yourself. It's a dead end. That's what we call darkness. Versus light, spirituality, light. Soul, if you're able to be spiritual, if you're able to meditate, and you're able to be spiritual, and you're able to, to appreciate spirituality and the finer things in life, and music, and, and the beautiful things in life, and you're able to shift away from your focus being an indulgence and self indulgence, but to appreciate the finer things and connect spiritually, that's what we call light. But then a Jew realizes. And he meditates on this. That to Hashem, what we call light, is darkness. The greatest spiritual heights, the most earth-shattering, mind-blowing experiences, spiritual experiences, higher levels of consciousness, sublime music, heavenly music, angelic realities, spirituality, higher worlds, higher realms, Tashem, this is nothing. This is insignificant. This is darkness. 
So what we call enlightenment, spiritual advancement, expansion of the consciousness, spirituality, religion, meditation, philosophy, poetry, music, art. To Hashem, it's darkness. It's nothing. It's insignificant. So it's not only that we're lost because we're lost, we're, we, we are in this quicksand, in this quagmire, in this mud of materialism. The whole universe is lost. Even the highest, brightest spot in the universe, the most highly evolved human being, the most the greatest angel, the most pure, sublime, heavenly spiritual experience, that, it's already lost. Because it's nothing. Hashem, it's darkness. It's an insignificant, absolutely meaningless nothing in relationship to Hashem. So we're, we're lost before we even start. <laughs> before we even get to this world. Starting at the highest world, the highest realm. It's already lost. How much more so than the soul plunges into this world this dark materialist world and then how much more so when we add insult to injury and then we sin and we, we sink even further and we're so lost we become so lost so far away from home so far away from who we really are because what is home? our essence our neshama our pintaliyid what is home? Hashem himself we are a piece of the divine essence we are a piece of Hashem Himself who transcends the whole entire universe and the whole entire frame of reference of the universe. That to Him all the higher realms and all the spiritual realms and the angels and the whole is nothing insignificant. It's less than a drop in the ocean in comparison to the ocean. It's, a, it's nothing. Meaningless. Irrelevant. Darkness. Nothing. And then the neshama comes into the world, into the spiritual world. And then from there it continues to travel in the nine months until it comes into the body, into the physical world. And we're born into the physical world. And then as we grow, the more potatoes we eat, and the more food we eat, or the more sushi we eat, <laughs> we just grow, just grow deeper into the quagmire. I'm not going to say chol, because Shabbos, Shabbos, is something, Shabbos is something special. And then all the poor choices that we make in our lives, and the speech and action and thoughts that we have, we pile it on. The poor soul is so lost, it's so far away from its home, from its home base, it's so far away from its core and essence, which is Hashem Himself. It's a Rachmanus on the soul. The soul has traveled so far, so distant, so remote, so removed from its true home, its true place. So, he says, in order to fully comprehend the Rachmanus, that we have to have in the soul, first you have to truly understand where the soul comes from, where it's home, where the soul feels at home, how far the whole universe is from Hashem. Even what we call enlightenment and, and spirituality and higher levels of consciousness and mind-blowing experiences, and that's not home. Hashem, in relation to Hashem, that's nothing. It's so far remote, so far removed from Hashem. So what we call light, 
we call a ray and light, Hashem, it's darkness. And that's a very powerful thought. You know, that with all religions and all spiritual movements, they're looking for the light. The light is darkness. <laughs> it's no comfort. It just exacerbates the problem. It just shows how far we are, how distant we are. When we confuse light to the real thing. The light of the sun is not the sun. It's just the light. That's all it is. When you confuse the light for the, for the, for the sun, it's pretty sad. So when we confuse the light, all it is is light. It's not, it's not the sun. It's not the essence. It's not Hashem Himself. The soul is a piece of God Himself. So it's not a comfort for the soul. You're going to give the soul light, radiation, a, a gray, a glimmer, illumination. It's not a comfort for the soul. It's darkness. It's very, very counterintuitive, very revolutionary thought. Uniquely Jewish way of thinking. Because again, all of the Kabbalah, if you divorce the Kabbalah from the Torah, as unfortunately some have tried to do, as if Kabbalah is an end in itself. Light. Light in Judaism is the ultimate darkness. Light, disconnected from Hashem, from Torah, from the code of Jewish law, from Hashem himself, is the ultimate darkness. That's not a comfort for the soul. It's, it's a reason to, to have Rachmanus on the soul. It's just a measure of how distant and how far and how clueless, how far and distant the Hashem is from its true home, which is the essence of Hashem. So the more you get this idea, the more you understand this idea, the more you can understand the trauma of the soul. For the soul, it's traumatic to be disconnected from Hashem. And even to be bathed in light, not only isn't it, doesn't the soul feel good, it's traumatic for the soul. Let alone when the soul has to plunge into darkness, and within darkness itself, into the depth of darkness, through our behavior and our actions and our poor choices. So you can get a sense. Then you start sensing just how far the neshama has come and how, how imprisoned the neshama is and how, how much in pain the neshama is. Existential angst. And this is probably the reason why there's so much addiction in this world. You know, we're the only ones in the universe that are addicted. Animals are not addicted. Angels are not addicted. You know, animals don't overdose, don't overeat. <laughs> because, ultimately, because we suffer from this existential angst. It bothers us. We know something is wrong. Something, there's something very deep and unsettling about our existence. Because we've come so far. The neshama, our neshama senses, 
And usually people who are addicted are actually very sensitive souls. They're in such pain because they just can't make peace. They just can't make peace with existence. You can't just live a nine-to-five life and everything is good. No, there's something wrong, something gnawing away at them, something very deep. They're just they're restless, it's causing them to be restless and, and in pain, extremely unhappy. And whatever they're addicted to is actually they're trying to numb the pain. That's not their problem. That's actually their solution. <laughs> they're trying to numb the pain, whatever their addiction is. Because they're in such pain. The Nisham is in so pain because they're so sensitive to this angst. It just robs us of our sleep and our peace of mind. Because it is Rachmanus in the Nisham. The more you realize how far the Nisham has come, then you can truly develop, evoke a sense of pity and compassion. And when you evoke a sense of pity and compassion, that will lead you to action. Because what's the only thing that can soothe the Nisham? Torah Mitzvah. The only thing that can give the soul a reprieve of this existential angst, of this deep, deep pain, of this trauma, is when it does something godly, when it can go back home, when it could reconnect with the essence of Hashem. When does the Nishama feel at home? When the Nishama is putting on tefillin, when the Nishama is lighting a Shabbos candle, when the Nishama is doing any of the 613 mitzvahs, shaking the lulav in the esrik, eating the matzah, studying the divine Torah. Not science, math, physics. Studying the divine Torah. When the Nishama is praying to Hashem, when the Nishama is giving tzedakah, the Nishama is touching the divine. Touching the divine essence. That's the only thing that can soothe this pain. Can, it's like a bomb on, on, this, on this wound. And that's why the Talmud says, ethics of our fathers, it says one moment of tshuva and, my, and good deeds, repentance of good deeds in this world is worth more than all the world to come. Because the world to come, that's the light. But in this world, we have the deeds, the good deeds. We have God Himself, the essence of Hashem, the Son. We don't have the light. We have the essence of Hashem. And the question is, why does He say repentance and then good deeds? Logically, first it is said good deeds, and then if you mess up, you can always have repentance and you can make up for it. Why first repentance and then good deeds? And the answer is, repent. Teshuvah doesn't mean repentance. The literal meaning of teshuvah means to return. It means what is the motivation to do the Torah mitzvah? When a person is in touch with his existential angst and he has rachmanus in his soul and he realizes the, tr- the trauma of the soul, that's what motivates him to return back home. What's the only way I can return back home? Through Torah, through good deeds. Because when I do a divine deed, it's not a ritual or a custom. A mitzvah is divine. When I study Torah, it's divine. When I pray, I'm talking to Hashem, it's divine. When I do an act of tzedakah, it's divine. So that's the only way I can return my soul and soothe this existential angst and justify the trauma of this descent, of this plunge of the neshama, this roller coaster ride of the neshama. The only thing that can justify it is good deeds. And one good deed is worth more than all of the 
world to come put together because the world to come is light. I'm bathing in light. What's light? Light is a, is a punishment for the soul. It's not a reward. <laughs> it's a disconnect. It's not Hashem. It's just light of Hashem, a ray of a glimmer of light. The neshama is, is hungering for the essence of Hashem to come back home. And the only way to touch the essence of Hashem is only through Torah mitzvah in this world, in the physical world. And that's why the opening of the Ten Commandments starts. I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Why is that the opening statement of the Ten Commandments? Hashem is giving us the Torah, He's giving us mitzvah. Why is it important, the opening sentence, I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt? They answer it again, because on a broader sense, what is Egypt? Egypt means, comes from the Hebrew word, limitations. So, the Egypt is not just the Egypt that the Jewish people wore 3,325 years ago. The Egypt is the human condition. It's this existential angst that the soul is trapped in the body, the soul is in this world, the soul is in such trauma, the soul is in such pain. So Hashem is telling the Jewish people, I am Hashem who is taking you out of Egypt today. How am I taking you out of your Egypt today? How am I soothing and redeeming you from your imprisonment? Through the Torah that I'm about to give you. Because when I give you the Ten Commandments, I give you the 630 mitzvot, I am giving you the way out. This is your way out. This is the teshuvah, that, the return that motivates me to do the good deeds, the mitzvot. So it's driven by this sense of compassion. It's a very deep-seated sense of compassion. And again, only a very mature person has the ability to have compassion. To, f- to go beneath the surface, beneath the labels, and to sense the soul of the other person. That's what compassion is based on. You only have compassion. If you look at the other person as a label, you don't have compassion. You know, when you, when you pigeonhole someone and you label them, uh, they're, they're no longer a human being. You, you just made them into some sort of cartoon and... But when you're able to go deeper and you, you, you feel for their soul, you have Rahmanas, you empathize. You have Rahmanas, your heart melts, you have Rahmanas. And even if they don't deserve it, have Rahmanas. So, so too, to be able to have compassion on our own soul, you have to be able to, be able to sense that soul. So first, in order to sense that soul, first it has to be based on understanding. First you have to have understanding how far the soul has come, where the soul is coming from, what the soul is experiencing, what, where the soul feels at home, how far it has plunged. And the Rachmanus in the soul, then you can evoke a sense of Rachmanus, which will motivate you to lead a Jewish life, to lead a godly life, to act in a wholesome way, to justify, because the only thing that can justify is constant pain, and the pain doesn't go away. The only thing that can justify this pain and soothe the pain is by plunging into Torah mitzvah when you throw yourself in wholeheartedly. So this is a Torah mitzvah that's illuminated. This is a Torah mitzvah that's alive. You're not just doing it mechanically, by rote, out of guilt. You're doing it to save your soul, to save your life. You're doing it for the... My life depends on this Torah. I'm doing the tefillin with every fiber of my being, every bone of my body. My life depends on this. This is my, my way out of this concentration camp that I'm in. Because the pain for the soul is no less than the physical pain of the inmates in the concentration. If not more.
That's how delicate and sensitive the soul is. So the minute I'm studying Torah, and that's why, if you can get one Jew to do one mitzvah, so people who are very superficial look at it and say, why are you wasting your time? Why are you spending so much money wasting your time? It's not smart marketing. It's not a good marketing approach. You stop a Jew on 42nd Street, you get him put on tefillin once in his life, you probably never see him again. So for two minutes, he stopped and put on tefillin. Well, what's the big deal? And probably he did it out of kindness because he had Rahmanas on you. <laughs> He's standing in the cold asking to put on tefillin. Okay, I'll make you happy, I'll put on tefillin. What's the big deal? What did you gain? You're not becoming a card-carrying member. Why waste your energy? I should focus on the elite and the special few I can really mold and could become card-carrying members of the community. Pay membership dues. Why am I wasting my time and all this energy? And... But you don't understand. If you understood that the neshama is in such pain, even if you're able for one minute, for one moment, to relieve the neshama of that pain, soothe that pain and give the neshama an opportunity to come home. Could you imagine if Hitler gave said, I'm giving you a pass. You can take out an inmate from the concentration camp for a half hour. You would run. Yes, 23 and a half hours, he's, he's suffering torture that worse than hell. But I can relieve him for a half hour of this pain. How would you feel if someone like that walked into shul if you knew nothing, you'd say, ah, that's how you walk into shul with our shabbatis. But imagine if you knew this was an inmate from a camp and you got a pass and you're able to get him out for a half hour, you, you would start crying with joy. So you see someone walk into shul, doesn't look consciously Jewish, doesn't look he has any conscious connection to anything Jewish. Why are you bringing this Jew into shul? Are you kidding? You got to reprieve for a minute to do something divine, to do something godly, to do something holy. You're saving his life. You're saving his neshama. His neshama is crying and tortured to death. And here, for one moment, he can do something godly and holy. Put on tefillin, shake the lulav in the asterisk, eat the matzah. Study Torah for a minute. Anything. Could you calculate how valuable and how precious it is? You redeemed the prince and brought him home to the palace, even if it's only for a minute? Can you imagine the, the pleasure you give to the king that you save the son even if you're only able to save him for one moment? Bring him home for just give him a reprieve for a moment. That's how you have to look but to see that to understand that you have to first be in touch with your own neshama. If you're in touch with your neshama you can see the neshama and the other Jew instead of looking them at the surface oh look at this self-hating Jew this paskud nyak this good for nothing this low life. It's not how you look at another person. You have to look beneath that. You have Rachmanus. And the greater the Paskut and the are, the more Rachmanus you have. Look how his soul is so tortured, his Jewish soul is so tortured. First you have to understand what the soul, we have a soul, what the soul is. And that's what he's going to start explaining. To be continued next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.